Hey, it's Tia Carrer, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. finely blended so it's not it's like bitty it's more smooth oh right so it's like almost yogurty right okay yeah i guess it's still around okay there you go there's our plug for ready <laughs> break if we so if next week it's like oh welcome to kino kingdom sponsored by ready break that'd be amazing <laughs> i'd rather be sponsored by like wild turkey or something um but i, I yeah welcome to kino kingdom 69 and i gotta say that this is this listening to this episode you would have just heard our new introduction for the first time uh, which is courtesy uh, of tia career uh, which which is amazing absolutely amazing and that's thanks to uh, our regular listener utah smith off the back of the cameo section that he again started uh, by sending some suggestions and after that he just said i'm just gonna do it and then he just blindly sent me that um introduction from tia that i call That's it incredible tia. she's uh yeah she's almost 60 <clears throat> she, she still looks amazing and uh yeah so that was very nice very professional introduction thank you tia mm. you um, are a tier one individual We'll be talking about a lot of tier one things later on. Um, did, three or four things. <laughs> did you? Um, I know you didn't watch the Oscars, but have you have you got any thoughts on them? Not really. Uh, I, I know it's going to be quite a short segment, then, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, everybody, everywhere, all at once, <clears throat> uh, swept it, and I think Banshees of Inisherin did not. <laughs> That's pretty much what I know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my thoughts about these things in general are that over the time, it's become much less about the consensus on what the great movies are and much more about moments, celebrity moments uh, oh, okay. in these things. Like some of them, you know, obviously you had last year the, the slap heard around the world. But yeah. this year, you know, like some nice moments like, um, you know, Harrison Ford embracing his uh, co-star, I can't remember the guy's name. The guy who came out of retirement to do work on everybody, everything, everywhere, all at once, uh, who was also in the indie movies and back in the day. But he was also in Temple of Doom, wasn't he? So, Playing short round. Yes. Temple of Doom, the worst Indiana Jones film. And I include that, including with the Crystal Skull. Um <laughs> And the reason I mentioned it, yeah, it was because of that, because I, I know that everything, everywhere, all at once swept it. <clears throat> and I remember that um, Max, one of our regulars who we're going to mm. hear from again later on, um, he really was taken by it. And then you watched it the next week and then you just weren't. I remember yeah. the episode. I was really excited. You were like, yeah, it's all right. I, yeah, I, I kind of admired it for being kind of wacky, but I also thought, just tone down the wackiness a bit because there's some quite nice moments in there which would have been a lot better if they hadn't had stupid prosthetic makeup and and stuff if they hadn't gone for the zany mode i don't know I just felt oh. it could have been a bit more grounded it still would have been a good movie there you go <clears throat> well that's our full oscars coverage but, we... well actually no i actually think <laughs> there is one more point to make about oscars and that is that it wasn't just uh, everything everywhere that, that swept it was a 
24, of course, who are um, have risen as a studio have risen rapidly over the last few years. And they're pretty much the kind of go to studio for quality output, I suppose. Um, you know, it, it, they kind of, especially in the realm of horror, for example, they kind of took over from like the Bloomhouse thing because Bloomhouse really was really responsible for kind of bringing horror back into the mainstream and making it massively profitable again but A24 almost like took the mantle and started doing some more risky stuff Um, so obviously got stuff like Hereditary and I think the Lighthouse is A24 as well Okay. but stuff like that you know smaller indie movies which do well and are very well suited to streaming with the occasional cinematic breakout hit which everything everywhere all at once was so well done to a24 and you know they don't have the clout of the big studios or even something like netflix so good for them are they named after their favorite size sheet of paper <laughs> they actually i I do know this. They are named. Two guys set them up, set up the studio, I think, and quite reclusive guys. But they, it's the name of the road or something that passes by their ta- hometown or something. Oh. So it's like name of a local road. Oh well, there, there was a, there was a, when I was um, growing up, there was a band from where I was uh, born called the A470. And that's the name of the road. And if we, again, it'd be boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's never, you never get anywhere in, um, like I was watching, oh, actually a film I've uh, got, a, I think I've forgotten to mention, but I watched the original, um, uh, not Cabin Fever. What's one with Eliza Dushko in? Um, wrong Turn? Wrong Turn. I watched the original wrong turn and I can't remember if I covered it last time or not. But, um, and you know, they, they, when they say they stop it at like an old petrol station, yeah. they're like, oh, go down dead man's curve and the intercross uh, lesbian murderer junction. And then, but then if that was in, if that was in Wales, it would be a guy pointing down the road and saying, oh, you got to turn by the fence and uh, go, go down by the burnt down fairground. And it wouldn't be as threatening and scary. No. Lesbian no. murdering junction. They'd probably rename that, wouldn't they? When, when the, as the mayor was like cutting the rim to that, you think, oh, can we just call it Jones Street? Actually, <clears throat> um, I think Wrong Turn is a film that I keep forgetting I've seen, and I keep watching it again and thinking, oh yeah, this one. It, it's, it's one of the last films that Stan Winston personally worked on, I think, um, because really? he designed he designed the um, the sort of hillbilly killers in it. Spoiler yeah. alert. And I, I, I'll have to check if I actually covered it last time because I, I really, I watched it again, I really enjoyed it and I kind of forgot how much I enjoyed it. Um, it's, yeah, I don't, it's, I don't think it's, I don't remember finding it particularly bad or anything. I just, I just forget about it every time I watch it and then I watch it again and it's like, oh yeah, I do remember this, but I don't stop watching. So that's a good time. <laughs> this is, this is going to be like that film, what I, I watched called Crown Royal, isn't it? With... <laughs> Uh, well, I just review it for like four weeks on the trot without realizing I've just talked about it the week before. Um, uh, Tom's Jane. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I won't talk about it too much length now, but um, yeah, if, if if I haven't, I will talk about it next time. What I will talk about now, however, is this episode's uh, cameo burst. So I just w- wondered if you wanted to 
maybe have a little a guess if I if okay. I throw some names at you and you you see uh, see how close you can get with them. How much um, did Tia cost? Do we know? Yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying it was a fifty quid. Really? Yeah. Jeez. Oh, thanks, Tia. That is a bargain. Yeah, absolutely bargain to have someone. There. And at the end of the where she says party on, she she threw that in. She didn't ask. She just she just used her acting instincts. And she's actually released a load of music. And one of her newest singles is on um, Spotify. If you if you're a fan of uh, female yes. pop vocals, which I am, and I listen to it. I'm trying. I'm just trying to find the. Um, there we go. So <clears throat> again, I'm just going to throw some throw some names up for you and then just see, see see how you feel, see what you think you'd pay. Okay, so <clears throat> Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> of course he's on there. Of course he is. Um, I think he would charge. See, he's still got a cult following. I think he'd be charging at least two hundred. What rubles or? <laughs> rupees. Uh, no. <laughs> I think he'd be charging two hundred dollars because, of course, he he still speaks in that slight mid-Atlantic accent, but he does live in America, I believe. Well, you're going to be disappointed then to find out that he actually charges eighty. Really? Drachma? No, eighty, <laughs> eighty pounds, eighty quid. Wow. For um for Malcolm McDowell to look at you and for you to stare at him and wonder why he has made some of his career decisions. Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose I would. Like it to kind of, I can't really think of anything particularly quotable from a Clockwork Orange, apart from him just like screaming in agony or saying he's gonna rape my eyeballs or something. I, I'm not sure I'd really want him to tell me that. So yeah, it wasn't a successful it. when he when he knocked on my door that night. It wasn't a successful treat or trick or treat experience for him to be honest. <laughs> really. He didn't have any sweeties when he left. <laughs> um. What about Richard? And I'm going to say Dreyfus because I know it's Dreyfus, but I, I can't. I don't know if that's like an American accent thing, because every time I hear someone say it's on Richard Dreyfus, but I think it's, it's, it's EY, isn't it? It's Dreyfus. Yeah, I, I, I always say Dreyfus. So that's um, what you're getting, Ricky. Um, <laughs> so, OK. 80 um, quid, 80 quid for Malcolm McDowell. Well, how much, how for, much Richard? for Richard Dreyfus? With the with cameo, I don't really know how this works, but do you, I mean, can you ask them to say specific things, or do they have like a set of just stuff they can say? I, I think it's down to to their choice. I mean, I, I think that um, they don't just sort of give. It's not like it's just a generic pre-taped thing because yeah, I, th- I think they ask for like at least guidance. Because for instance, like if you're doing it, it could be like a marriage proposal or a thing for a friend. So I think you have to give them like a guidance. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Say it. I, yeah. did, I did have, I did have a, 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 as I was listening back to Tia's like introduction to Kino Kingdom, and and she's like, you know, hey Rupert and Britt, I thought I can just imagine you sitting down in a dark room, and editing, editing her like <laughs> a la Patrick Wilson in Space Station seventy six <laughs> to suit your own foul needs. Oh my god, that film is amazing. Everyone needs to go and watch Space Station seventy six because like no one's ever heard of it, and it's amazing. I think I think we watched that and Computer Chess back to back in one day. Possibly it was Mulholland Drive. I can't remember. What yeah, a, that was a hell of a double bill. And I got to say, what, I, you mentioned it now, but yeah, Computer Chess and Space Station seventy six, hell of a double bill. I still think that that scene in Mulholland Drive, um, is, is it in La Silencia that club? Yeah. I still think that's one of the best sequences I've ever come across in cinema. Yes. Um, so, and now it's the Apple Store. Oh really? Yeah. 
I think it's an They're horrible phone. places. I get the same feeling when I look into a mobile phone shop or like an Apple store especially as I do when I look into like a quick fit or like a tire place. When I just imagine that no one's happy, you know. <laughs> and you're like, if I had a hangover and it was sit down in a room that stank of rubber and petrol, I would not be pleased. So you're just like, you're basically just gazing into sadness. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> fourth novel. Um, or oh, as Oliver Reed called it, a mirror. <laughs> So okay, Richard Dreyfus. He, yeah. I think he's he's a bit classy. I think he'd. Uh, well, Eighty-five quid. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he, he's got to break. <clears throat> I think he's got to be one hundred and fifty at least. Surely, I mean, he's got. He's got cult clout even more so than Malcolm McDowell. Five hundred and three pounds. Flipping it! Why? What's the three about? <laughs> I assume it's all like to do with like tax and, and oh, the amount okay. of cameo on the agency. I mean, I like you, Richard, <laughs> and you've been in some great movies, but 500 is pushing it. 500 quid for a minute. I'd say you better be fucking talking quick. You better get <laughs> as many words out as you can in yeah. that minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. That's, that's a bit steep. It'd be nice to see a little preview, you know, like what makes it so special. It would be special. You wonder as well if it would be professionally lit, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. I mean, if it's just someone in a, in their car, like if it if I paid, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something, like bloody Gary Daniels to send me a message, and, and then he, it's just him driving his car half cut, going, oh, wicked, wicked. I think, oh, that wasn't worth 400 quid. <laughs> <laughs> I'd want it to be like a professionally lit setup. And I, I, would, I would ask Gary Daniels to spend his minute explaining his accent. <laughs> and all, like and are you British you spent a lot a bit of time in childhood living in like uh, Canberra or I think I would say to him you know at that scene at the start of City of Fear where someone slides a letter into your door and you're standing stock still facing a wall in your apartment what were you meant to be doing because that was a completely unnatural scene just see what he yeah no, you got one minute. Go. <laughs> Off your truck, guys. We it? paid you 75 quid for this. All <laughs> <laughs> um, answers. Um, um, Sean Astin. Okay, so Sean Astin. So, he's the guy. Is he the guy from Lord of the Rings? He's, yeah, he's the one Sam that. Sam he? He, he, yeah, he basically looks like James Corden if he was slightly further away. <laughs> so, Sean, and, and I suppose Stranger Things kind of like gave him a little boost more recently i think but he seems like a nice guy i think he'd probably I oh sorry it's austin not austin is it not aston sorry sean austin is it austin or aston i thought it was sean aston you're thinking of asti spamanti now aren't you oh yeah um i think well if it's the person i'm thinking of then <laughs> i reckon 125 293 pounds bloody nora Getting greedy now. What about and there's there's a Tia is looking like a lot like a bargain now. Well, Tia is pretty much the same amount as Randy Couture, and I know who I'd rather get a message from. <laughs> um, okay, so we'll say, we'll say this is the last one, and how how are you feeling about this? Is a big I do a drum roll if I had a button. Okay. Gary Boosie. Or was <laughs> uh, or was Smith has called him in this message? Fucking Gary Boosie. <laughs> Uh, well, he's, I mean, this is, this is his gig between, between, t- between Ginger Dead Man sequels 
Ness. This is where his main income really, isn't it? I'd laugh, yeah. It's, it's like if he handed in his CV to it, to it, they'd say, oh, I see that your hobbies are um, going on Cameo, um, doing Ginger Dead Man sequels, and laughing maniacally into a pond, pretending the fish live inside you. <laughs> 400. 332. So you actually, yeah. So yeah, that's. I think that's reason. I think with Gary, because. You wouldn't know what you're gonna get. I mean, you pay five hundred for Richard Dreyfus, and you kind of know what you're gonna get. It's gonna be nice. It's gonna be. He might be in front of a log fire. Who knows? Gary Boosie, well, like Roger Whittaker. <laughs> you don't know what you're gonna get with Gary, would you? He'd probably throw himself on the fire. <laughs> Still grinning, just his teeth visible through the flames. <laughs> moved into a haunted house and I lit a fire and then I just sat there and there was like crackling and popping and I was just looking at the fire and then like a ghostly image came out and then like I just thought is that teeth specific teeth Gary's teeth I think that won um, best picture at the Oscars this year actually Gary's <laughs> teeth yeah. Um, so, of course. And now we move on to the 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 actual movie part of this podcast. And yes. I've I've only got four movies this week. Okay. So I've got but, a few, uh, but I you know. But one of them more than makes up for, <laughs> yeah. for the three. I think I know what that's going to be. Although, who knows what the title could be? Probably different on the DVD as it is on the screen. You're not far wrong. You're not far wrong. So I've only got, and I've got a guest review as well. So we'll do that a little bit okay. later on. So I've talked for a long time. Do you want to open and close your mouth while you vibrate your vocal cords at the same time? Yeah, sure. I could speak. Yeah. So um, Fall, I watched a film called Fall on Netflix, which seems to be quite popular at the minute for some reason. Um, so this is a uh, survival thriller, I guess you could call it about a young woman whose husband and best mate uh, are climbing uh, when disaster strikes and the husband falls to his death. It's not a spoiler. It happens in the first two minutes. Um, A year later, she's still distraught, kind of understandably. So her best mate helps her, inverted commas, by convincing her to climb a 2,000-foot TV tower in the middle of the desert. Um, mm-hmm. So they climb this ridiculously high tower, get to the top, the ladder falls off, and then they need to survive somehow. Uh, it's more about actually trying to communicate their peril to people on the ground. It, it, it sounds is, like this film should have been called For Fuck's Sake, as opposed to Paul. Yeah, For Pete's Sake. Um, and then a husband could have been called Pete, so it would have had a double meaning. Anyway, so... Yeah, so they're it's they're a bit screwed really. It's just less about the climbing and more about thinking and trying to work out how they're going to communicate with people on the ground. It's patently absurd, obviously. I mean, all the climbing scenes are ridiculous. Um, there's you, there's a vulture attack scene because of course that's what vultures do, and the general disregard for physics and all that stuff. I'd say would be fine uh, and enjoyable, were it not for the fact that the script is unbelievably bad 
and the people in this film they don't speak like actual human beings and all of the like the core messaging in the movie is just utterly juvenile literally there's a like a keynote climactic speech right where she literally says in the as a narrator like life is short so do stuff that makes you feel alive it's like well i thought well that's pretty bloody ironic isn't it really given that the two incidents two major incidents you just portrayed in this film have been deadly and horribly traumatic what are you trying to say like the message should really be do what makes you feel alive but not what you've just seen on the screen for the last hundred minutes because clearly why would you do that these two things have killed people they've been this person is never going to recover if she survives which i won't spoil (laughs) um anyway but i will say there is one cheap twist near the end that does kind of work but it's it's really it's the words that they're speaking that's the real problem the actors are okay like the best friend she looks it's weird she looks and sounds like reese witherspoon but a buff reese witherspoon she's been working out something jeffrey dean morgan is in this film by the way for about 45 seconds (laughs) um i think i know who plays the husband who dies at the start then (laughs) um actually no he's the dad but he is she's in it briefly um the music is terrible it's like this placeholder over dramatic rubbish it's it's an okay silly survival movie which is utterly downgraded into mediocrity by a terrible script i would say it is inessential viewing and i've no idea why it's so popular on netflix but there you go did it make your feet sweat no mm. not. so yeah that's a point actually go and watch free solo instead that's on disney <clears throat> um well i've been working my way through again some of the films that transvaal has given me sure. and one of those films is the 1995 psychological thriller separate life starring james belushi and linda hamilton <laughs> and, and an extremely young elizabeth moss in probably one of her first roles before slightly before she found fame in the handmaid's tale um this I when I watched this I remember my mother having this on VHS and when I when I got it off Transvaal I thought oh my god this is one of those films that I never watched because I thought it was like an adult film um, mm. and and it, and it was nice to see Linda Hamilton in a film because she hasn't really been in much that I've seen anyway um, mm. obviously Terminator and so on but so I was quite excited for this and when I read the back and find that it was about a uh, you know, a, a, a sort of psychotherapist and a student played by James Belushi. Uh, I thought, oh, this is the year after Color of Night. Like psychologists <laughs> and, you know, a noir thriller. Is it going to be the same thing? It is not. It is. Yeah, because that is. You see Brucey's tip, obviously. And it's it's generally. And of course, it's Scott Bakula, who's like the quintessential man. He's got like an absolute man physique. Um, and it's got the most ridiculous <clears throat> non twist. <laughs> in cinema history but anyway yeah go on um but yeah so i was hoping for this for the same with this film um but it's just a kind of paler comparison really so Mm. linda hamilton plays uh dr lauren porter and james belushi is tom beckwith her her uh her student and he clearly fancies her uh, with his hair. There's no product. <laughs> There's no product. He barely runs his hand through it. Um, and and she she's sort of trying to keep him at arm's length, but she she 
because he used to be a cop, uh, he she says, look, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to follow someone. And he's like, well, of course. Yeah. What, who do you want to follow? And she says, well, me, because she believes she's leading this separate life uh, at night when she takes on a different persona and goes out. She said the other day someone was murdered and she woke up with blood in her hands. And um, she just wants to make sure that to sort of convince her conscience that she's it's not her. It's just all a big coincidence. Mm-hmm. And that's the main thrust of the plot. But. What the first thing I noticed here when she told me this, I thought, well, if you if you were this sort of quite reserved, polite, mousy psychologist who teaches this class in the university, and you then go home, and then you suddenly, when you go to bed, you wake up as a different person in, in the middle of the night, at like midnight, and then you start smoking and drinking, taking drugs, going out partying and shagging till six in the morning. You would know if you were doing that because you would wake up and you would be cream cracker. <laughs> She'd be driving to work again. Oh, I feel sick for some reason. Really tired. Uh, really thirsty. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just quite, it starts off quite amusing because you're waiting for it to like kick up a gear or things to get really kooky and like silly fun. But it always stays in this weird middle gear of assuming that like the setup is enough. Um, and there's a little bit of sort of synth synth saxophone and some sort of smooth jazz in it, which is fine. Okay, and s- some moments of people smoking cigarettes while they look through blinds and explain the plot to each other, which is absolutely fine. <laughs> but but I can never take James Belushi seriously. And, it, it, yeah. and his, his, his face is kind of like round, chubby face and his flyaway hair. It just looks like he's always about to look, look at the camera and smirk. And yeah. in every scene, I just had that feeling. So it and, and it doesn't. He doesn't play well with Linda Hamilton because she's supposed to be this. She, I've always seen Linda Hamilton as kind of a, in terms of sort of sexuality and seduction, as a sort of Sigourney Weaver character. Yeah, um, I know what you mean. Uh, and so she, when she's walking around in negligee in this, and it's sort of like sort of quite petite frame, and then she's sort of in, when she's in this other persona and she's trying to seduce James Belushi, who's standing next to her looking like a plumber who's coming to fix her cl- clogged up bog, and and he's just got like his hands thrust in his pockets and like his kind of is you know, leaning forward slightly with his ridiculous hair. Yeah. And then, and then, like a really drab flannel shirt on over like a grey t-shirt. You think he just he's not. There's, there's no, no, there's no class, is there? Yeah, I mean, and she's there's no... kind of class, whereas he really isn't. Like, no. and I mean, I don't just mean in terms of like classes in kind of like wealthy or anything like that, but I mean, he's not a, he's not someone who exudes like anything kind of classy, even in terms of like heroism or anything like that. He's always just like this kind of roguish tosser really in everything i've seen him in and he, that's what he exudes I, he's like the most recent dated actor i can think of as in like he would not be his whole persona would not be in movies today sort of thing and yet mm. it was only like 20 odd years ago that he was in movies so yeah mm. so yeah there's just there's just no there's no if in fact if you if you type separate lives film into separate lives not that one film into Wikipedia you'll see even on the cover she's looking all sultry and then he just kind of looks like he's almost been superimposed in and it, it could just be the other half of the oh, cover yes. of Red Heat if you know what I mean yeah oh, um, Lisa Vanderpump is in this film I Lisa Vanderpump of <laughs> the uh, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills fame 
Vanderpump rules. No, it's all all gone over my head. Yeah, well, quite popular um, these days, but I didn't realise that she was an actor. And in fact, I didn't care. So there you go. Um, And yeah, the other thing I wanted to say about this as well is it's it's worth it just because for the there's a scene in it where, you know, we always talk about people who are just like bad at their jobs, like bad policing and stuff. Yeah, there's a bit at the start where to sort of show their relationship for some reason she's in this office talking to like a really troubled woman um while the class kind of watch through one-way glass that the woman gets up smashes picks it with a chair picks up a shard and like while sort of cutting herself threatens to slash linda hamilton's throat and James Belushi sort of goes to step into Vienna. She says, no, stay back. And with this whole class watching, mm-hmm. this woman's been obviously coming to her for a very long time. She just says this ridiculous monologue that just completely calms her down and just solves her problems. But she just says, look, <laughs> I know your father used to bathe and molest you every night and your mother used to bring men home to have sex with you. And then they made you watch pornos with them. And then with a boyfriend who kicked the shit out of you. And then you got a job and your boss abused you. But what you need is love. And then they just hug. And I oh, thought, I don't God. think that that that's the monologue, secret sauce. That rush monologue would have solved all of her problems. And she's, that's not me being facetious. They, that's pretty much what she says. Like they, her life has been obviously really awful. Um, and that sort of thread runs through it. So later on then when uh, like that sort of a nail on the head exposition is a bit later on where James Belushi is just a bad father. He's just a neglectful father. And he's at the firing, like a, yeah, they call it a shooting range. And his ex-partner comes along and says, oh, is that the gun you, your wife used to shoot herself? And he goes, no, I got rid of that. This is just the same model. I thought, why did you say that? I didn't. Well, that doesn't add anything. And uh, yeah, there's a scene where <laughs> it's, it's so bad. James Belushi sort of realizes he can use like what he's learned through psychology class with Linda Hamilton against her alter ego to try and get this information out of her. So, and, and, and you can see him reacting like his eyebrows sort of goes up and they're in this room and he's pointing and he's like, Oh, so uh, you ever been down to Murmy beach recently? And she's like, Oh, maybe. And these of you were uh, maybe <clears throat> killed anyone. And and it's like you're not being subtle, James. And he's like raising his eyebrow and stuff as if he's like really getting to the heart, subtly to the heart of the matter, you know. Um, but yeah, he's terrible. And this film just is, it's just really flat, and it never really goes anywhere. Mm. So it's no color of night then. It's no color of night. It's no color of night. I don't want to see. I wouldn't want to see his tip anyway. Okay. Belushi's tip. Yeah. <laughs> And be, that would be the name of the show he would title after himself, where like he gives yeah. out horse bets or something. Mm-hmm. It would be something like that, that sort of bland, yeah. Delivered to camera, shouting at the camera in that, that abrasive way. There's, um, right, okay, so I won't watch that then. Um, where where is it available? Oh, this is a, this is a 10p DVD, isn't it? From a <laughs> this is a 10p shop. shop DVD. I don't know where okay, it is. Okay, excellent. You can borrow um, it off me. <laughs> no, I'm right. Actually, I watched the Banshees of Inisherin uh, on Disney Plus, uh, which, yes, as we said, I mean it was an Oscar contender. It's the latest film from Martin McDonough, who made In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and this this remote Irish island. 
uh, and the setting is, is 100 years ago, um, so 1923, obviously, and uh, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, uh, they were best mates, but suddenly Gleeson doesn't want to know him. And he says that Colin Farrell's boring and he wants to focus on his music instead. Now, Colin Farrell is distraught by this, but Brendan Gleeson's character is threatening to cut off his own fingers if Colin Farrell comes near him. So anyway, so Farrell confides in... Uh, a young man played by Barry Keown, uh, our boy Barry. And Barry is a simple kid, really. And he's also habitually abused by his policeman father. And then there's uh, also Siobhan, who's Colin Farrell's sister, who's kind of the voice of reason, I guess. So, yeah, it's set in 1923 and which crucially is the second and final year of the Irish Civil War. And I suppose you could probably dig deep into this one too, kind of, identify which side of the conflict each of these men is meant to kind of represent uh was it like the irish free state or ira but i think it's more to do with the kind of arbitrary nature of relations in wartime like the way that former friends can suddenly become designated enemies and so there is a serious message to the film but it is also really funny at times no actual jokes as such. It's more just like the disbelief of the characters at the overwhelming despair and self-destructiveness of the other characters, really. It's like they're all trying to inject some kind of meaning and significance into their lives by manufacturing conflict between each other. But, of course, underneath, as Siobhan, the sister, points out to Brendan Gleeson at one point, she says, you... She says to Brendan Gleeson, like, you you call other people boring, but you're all boring people. <laughs> like, none of you have <laughs> got anything to say <laughs> at all. Um, <clears throat> and I suppose as well, it's, it is making a point that even before, like, social media and a world of instant communication that we're in now, even at a time when people were cut off, but physically cut off from outside global horrors, that godless people would still find arbitrary reasons to hate each other because that's human nature and it's that godlessness which is quite conspicuous in this movie because the villagers don't go to church they just hang out in the pub every day there's nothing else to their lives but rumors and accusations and well the distant crackle of gunfire from the mainland but like there's there's a priest on the island but he treats confession like it's a coffee and gossip morning or something or in fact he really treats it like he's just hanging out with someone at the pub i like how the movie focuses almost entirely on colin farrell because he keeps getting the accusation that he's a boring man because when you focus hard on one individual you, you're never really going to find them boring and ironically brendan gleason seems so bored and bitter that you wonder if he's not just suicidal himself um so i like this film and I, I thought it's a little bit spare at times and it coasts a little bit sometimes. And Barry Keown seems to be written out the script halfway through, which I found a bit odd. Um, I'm not sure what the purpose of that subplot was. I wonder if it's something to do with <clears throat> sort of saying that the young are the first to be sacrificed in times of war. I don't know, possibly something mm. along those lines. It's probably less accessible and less outright funny than 
McDonough's previous films, I'd say. It's not as uproarious as like in Bruges. And I still think Three Billboards is Martin McDonough's best film. But I, this is worth watching also, definitely. It's not too big a step down. So I enjoyed this. The Banshees of Inner Sharon. This is a, this is a film that's been on my uh, radar for a while, and I am going to watch it. But I, I just need to be. I haven't been in a very filmy mood the last few uh, okay. the last few weeks, or, or not in the mood for this kind of film. You know, where I need to sit down and really focus on it and take it in because they, McDonough films are treats, aren't they? they are, yeah, so you want it's to sit a very, down really. so much to do with like subtlety <clears throat> of performance stuff, and the performances are brilliant. And Colin Farrell in, in particular is just hilarious in it. Like he's just so he's so wounded by being spurned by Brendan Gleeson, you just cannot I, get over it. Just the camaraderie of them, like see them in yeah. award shows recently, and how much they obviously really love and respect each other. It's just it makes me want to watch it even more. So I will watch this at some point. Well, that yeah, that kind of adds a layer of humour to it because I've seen that and I've seen their like actual love for each other in real life, and then to watch this film where. There's such a burning <laughs> hatred between them, like building, like just a building fire of hatred between them. It just makes it even funnier. <laughs> you know, it's even further from the truth. <clears throat> Do you know what um, isn't funny? Gonorrhea? <laughs> no, uh, the film Foolproof um, okay. that I watched, 2003, Ryan Reynolds. F-U-L-L or <clears throat> F-O-O-L? You, oh, sorry, foolproof. I understand foolproof. my thick Welsh brogue would throw you off, yeah. Um, yeah, F-O-L. Um, okay. I need a bit of help here, right, because for, for me, just for the context of this movie, because Ryan Reynolds was in, the first thing I remember him being in was Van Wilder. Okay. Right, which is like, what, 2001, something like that? Yeah, it's a while back. And I remember, I remember, like, teenage friends of mine really finding that film funny. And... I, I've never seen it, and then and then kind of he was in like stuff, and then I remember him being a Deadpool. I I don't really know what he's done in between, to be honest. Uh, so I mean, he, he was he was in uh, first thing I think I saw him in was buried uh, buried that film where he is yes buried. Oh right, yeah. yeah. See, I've again I've heard of that. So when was that? Let's just I'm trying to work this it's out. Probably two thousand four. No, oh, was it later than that. No, 20, might be late. It might be about nearer 2010, actually. I'm just trying to think, because he was in, oh, he was in Blade Trinity before that, wasn't he? Yeah, Jeez. again, again, that and that was painful. So that was, this is the thing. He was in Blade Trinity, that was painful. He's yeah. in the Amityville Horror, which the remake 2005, in which is Scott, he plays the father. In, but it's got one of the funniest moments in any horror film for me, um, mm. where... I think I'm going to mention this on a really early episode of the podcast, where he's... <laughs> He's constantly digging for a hole in the in the in the in the basement, and he's mm. just really estranged from his daughter, who's like five or six, and his wife, and like, and and she says like dinner's ready, and she's got this like really shaky facade of normalcy going on, and she's and she's like trembling as she goes around the kitchen, knowing he's losing his mind, and he comes up and sits down, and he's holding a shovel, he's covered in dirt, and he's just staring at her, and she comes over and puts like breakfast on, she's like there you go, eggs and bacon, just oh you like them, darling, and then she turns round. And she's like washing the dishes and crying, and then he just—he doesn't take his eyes off her, and he—he he doesn't even look at the food, and he just says, "You fucking cunt." 
And then he just goes back down to do some more digging. And I thought, what a harsh scene. And then she completely breaks down. But it's it's just, I'll have to watch that again, actually, because it's, of course, it's such a, a British way of swearing from an American, from someone you associate with comedies. It was just a really bizarre scene. It's all stuck in my mind. It's just a harsh sequence. Um, Yeah, and then he was in Smoke and Aces, remember? And then oh, yeah, God, he's yeah. bits and pieces. And he was in the original like, bad version of Deadpool in X-Men Origins. And then he's in Barry, and then Green Lantern, which is crap. And then Beer. And it's like all oh, that, 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 nothing I would have. He was kind of in Van Wilder and then other stuff. So, he's in a lot more crap than he is good. Film. Yeah, looking at this filmography, it's actually quite impressive the amount of complete tosh he's in. A film called Dick, I remember, with um oh, what's her name? Kirsten Dunst and oh just yeah. It's, it's if you look at Ryan Reynolds' filmography up until Deadpool, it's yeah, let's, shit, not, let's not forget R. I. P. D. with uh, <laughs> Jeff uh, uh, I quite like that. I didn't mind that one. I didn't like that mind that as much. I know, as it's something I'm never gonna watch probably. How but yeah, you? it's um, been but actually when you thing is his recent output, if you look at like Free Guy, Red Notice, I mean, they're just like, ugh. <laughs> they're just so uninspiring. Anyway. And you're his agent. Um, so a million ways to die in the West. Wow. Um, so yeah, I'll go off this because I feel like we could spend a whole episode talking about how bad his career has been um, <laughs> up until the last 10 years. Um, so this, 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 this film, Foolproof. Yeah. It is painful. It's it's a 2003 Canadian film, and I get the impression it. I can't imagine it was ever in the cinema. It feels like a Canadian TV film, like show that's just been released on DVD. This is another one. Thank you, Transvaal, for ten pence. And um, the the plot is that this. I don't even know who they are. There's Kevin, Sam, and Rob. I assume Sam is the woman. It's basically Ryan Reynolds. Like a kind of slightly nerdy guy who's into computers, and then Sam, who's a, a burner who looks like Kristen Bell. Oh, but it's played by someone called Kristen as well, Kristen Booth. And they have this, and it's one of those things, right? Bear in mind, they all have completely arbitrary kind of office jobs. They have this game called Foolproof, where they they find buildings or you know like bank vaults or uh, security systems, and they create actually working plans that would work. To infiltrate and burgle these these places, um, but they don't actually do it because they've they've got a sense of you know morality. So they don't they don't actually right. do it. They just they just kind of somehow buy all this really expensive equipment, and go through all the hassle of working out if the heist would work, but they're not actually doing it. <laughs> Stop me if this sounds like a really clunky way to set up a bad plot. By the way, yeah, it does. And um, so th- then what happens is they they get this this plan together. And then David Suchet nicks it. And because their fingerprints are all over it, he says, look, what I'm going to do is basically follow this to the T. And if the plan doesn't work, I'm going to kill all of you. And if it does work, I'll give you all your plans back. So I haven't got any evidence against you. Uh, and they then get sort of coerced into doing this this plan. But the film is painful. It's full of little... They keep on saying every time someone suggests something and then someone else says, Are you sure that's going to work? The person who suggested that will say... <laughs> it's foolproof and they say it about nine or ten times in the film and um, the music is like oh god you know that like sort of neo spy music from the night like austin powersy kind of oh, like sort of like that mission impossible sort of yeah. busky fluty dot all that sort of stuff um the the dialogue is just is just unfunny and but the most bizarre thing of all this kind of like really it's just just t- like Sunday afternoon TV-ish plot. Yeah. I could not 
Ryan Reynolds is wearing, he's dyed his hair jet black, and he's wearing an astonishing amount of makeup in this film. Like, it's odd, because he's a handsome man in his 20s. In every scene, it looks like he's just come out from having a lot of Botox and collagen done. He's just, to the point that he just always looks white against against the like the background, and he always just looks sort of superimposed onto himself. Um, David Suchet is really hamming it up, but it's it just feels like a, a episode of a Canadian TV show that's just stretched out. And every time they said, huh, it's foolproof, the gun went closer into my mouth and the hammer went back further. <laughs> I, I, by the time the film ended, I just thought I'm, that was that was not my thing. I'm not enjoying this at all. <laughs> um, so yeah, don't fool. It's terrible. A terrible film. And I can this even imagine for like it, it feels like something. <clears throat> Again, if I dance dance back into Ryan Reynolds' filmography, this film, 2003, which which would have been after Van Wilder and just the, the year before Blade Trinity. Right. Yeah. It, it just feels like it's. It feels like it should be five years prior. Like one of the first things he was in, you know, just like mm. finding his feet and getting it. Because he's basically got a character he plays in every film, isn't he? Apart from when he does something like The Amateurville Horror or Buried. It, he's mm. just Ryan Reynolds. And and it's just like a proto version of himself. Yes. And I think that tendency has only increased over time. There's no evidence. To, yeah, to kind of pigeonhole himself, I suppose. But that's his brand, isn't it? I mean, he's a multi-businessman type person, isn't he? So he doesn't really want to do anything to upset that apple cart. Um, right. Okay, foolproof then. Let's not watch that. No. We're not getting a lot of, a lot of decent movies yet. Although I did watch one. Oh, Banshee's movie. a finisher. And yeah, yeah, you yeah that's, true, that. that's true. Uh, <laughs> I watched um, X on Prime. X being the first part of Time. Pearl trilogy. Um, it was released in 2022, same year as the second part of the trilogy called Pearl. Um, and there's a third part coming out next this year, maybe next year. Um, anyway, so this is about a, a group of young men and women who travel to a Texas farmhouse to film an adult movie called The Farmer's Daughters, and the puritanical owners of the farmhouse discover what they're up to and they don't like it much and a bloodbath ensues there's a little bit more to it than that because well you know something's up when you notice that the old couple (laughs) who own the place are actually younger actors in heavy makeup so there's some creepy weird intergenerational stuff going on here Anyway, the, the, the setting, the year is 1979 and Ty West is giving us, it's it's an unashamed homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he, Ty West, obviously he did House of the Devil, Innkeepers and stuff. And they, they use like, well, 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter stock. And he's got really good at that, this stuff, like this kind of 70s, maybe early 80s homage stuff like the square aspect ratio and the film stock and the the long takes and the faded pastel colors. He even does some like in this film, he does some weird jump cutting back and forth um, between scenes, which is, it's kind of hard to describe, but you you know it when you see it and it's pure like seventies indie, it's like someone experimenting in the editing room. And I love that stuff. So anyway, it's a, it is a pure slasher in the end, 
what makes the killers a little bit different here is that they are in a way not just they don't just hate the youngsters exactly but but jealous of them like pearl the elderly wife she wants to feel wanted by her husband in the way that the young ladies are but she can't have sex with him because her husband's heart is too weak so (sighs) pearl is basically this bereft old woman and she's just murderously bitter basically I mean, as a slasher movie, it's not that remarkable. But in terms of the build-up, the tension, the script writing, the the editing, and just the general craft, really, is very watchable. And I like the fact that Ty West and Damien Leone, our boy, our terrifier boy, um, they're basically making these <laughs> idiosyncratic 70s or 80s low-budget horrors, but they're bumping up the production values and updating the sexual politics really and i'm fine with that i don't think either of them are trying to push modern horror forward as such it's more like they're trying to push 40 year old horror forward (laughs) which is also fine you know it's just going back into the past and they're not slavish homages they are i think they're loving homages these films um but also bringing a kind of a, a modern sensibility to them so i i'm fine with that more of this stuff please and what was that called x it's just called x the letter in the x no, no. yeah oh, yeah that sounds good and what was that where, where's that available it's on prime <coughs> and you didn't pay cash money for it did not pay cash money mm. or did i don't think so Maybe that's what this is all about. Maybe maybe my recent sort of, not falling out of love, but my recent sort of drifting away from movies is is because I need to watch some more slashes. I need to get back into the 70s. Need maybe you yeah, did need to strip it back to its basics. But yeah, that, well, this is a good way of doing it. I mean, it's, it's brief. Like, it's not even 100 minutes, I don't think. Effective, um, brutal. Nice. I'm, how, how many movies have you got left? I have another one, two, three, four. I've got another four if necessary, but you know I can always. No, no, that's fine because I've, I, we've got a guest review to slip in. I want to make I'll do this one and then sure. you do yours. We'll do the guest review and then and then I'll go to the pinnacle of this show. <laughs> okay. Be beyond even an introduction by the beautiful Tia career, the beautiful and talented Tia career. Mm-hmm. I watched. And I don't want you to type anything. I don't want you to look this up as I talk about it, right? I just want you to listen to my beautiful voice and take this in. <clears throat> I don't want you to, to see to see the uh, the surprise at the end of time. I'm going to talk about a bad film now. Um, this is called Undefeatable. It's 1993 uh, martial arts film. And it stars Cynthia Rothrock. Uh, mm-hmm, someone called Chris, mm-hmm. Christy Jones, who is a... She does these these awful street fights where... I don't want to be sexist, right? Uh, but uh, like Cynthia Rothrock is obviously very. She looks fantastic still these days, and I'll talk about her acting in a minute. But she's in this film. She's like in in this kind of gang where they do like illegal street fights for cash, and she uses that cash to finance her sister's college tuition, her younger sister's college tuition. And she gets in these fights, and and some of the people, I just think they would just kick the shit out of her. Like I don't, I don't. <laughs> I, I've never seen an actual fight between like a, a woman, a, a, like a real fight between like a five foot three woman and like a six foot four bloke who, mm. assuming both have got martial arts backgrounds, if you know what I mean, not just like 
someone just clumsily going at it. Yeah. But the, so it's like the quite uncomfortable. She's obviously very good at, at at karate and you know martial arts, but it's just it's just slightly unconvincing, and I don't think it's helped yeah. by the fact that it's kind of it's just so badly choreographed as well not on her behalf but they've obviously just got like blokes in who look a bit threatening so they just look kind of clumsy against her um so it just looks like a weird choreographed dance anyway so she's she's doing these fights for her sister and then and then the film cuts to a woman again may as well be talking to linda hamilton uh she's in a psychologist's office and she's saying oh my husband is a like a, a a famous like prize fighter and she said, oh, when we married him, he was lovely. Uh, and he's just changed. He's just changed over the years. And the psychologist is like, what, what, what do you mean? Has he changed? She's like, oh, he's just not, he's not very nice. Uh, and I just, uh, she's like, I think you should, I think you should leave him. He's just, he's just not a very nice man. And she is understating. <laughs> she is understating what this man is like. Because what this man is like is she'll shakily make dinner <laughs> as if making it for Ryan Reynolds uh, digging a hole in the basement. Um, and and he'll he'll be in these like really visceral and it'll be intercut between her cooking food and her husband having these really visceral fights uh, in a ring. It's so kind of dodgily filmed. You can't tell if it's like a an, an actual martial arts match or if it's like some underground thing. But there's obviously like a lot of money in it. And then he'll come home and he'll just rape his wife. Yeah. But but as he's like raping her and she's crying in scenes that are protracted and go on for far too long to be comfortable. Like, you know, in a martial arts film, when it comes to these people seem to struggle when it comes to heavy duty scenes like this. It's like you can have a martial arts film or an action film that's got mentions rape or is based on like someone being killed. But you can just it doesn't have to like be really lurid and focused on it because then it shifts the balance of the film because the people watching it aren't there for that. Um so it's like this really protracted rape scene and the guy is like as he's thrusting and the woman's his wife's crying it cuts to what he's actually thinking about and it's just him like beating someone up like he's kind of turning himself on with violence mm-hmm. as he's raping his wife and you're like, okay naughty and there's a really depressing scene where she's just on the floor with like sort of underwear down and he's just eating the food she's made saying oh this is really great darling <laughs> and you think oh, it's, a bit, it's a bit creepy anyway so she frank boss she leaves him and he loses the few remaining marbles in his net sack and then goes on a hunt basically to kill women who look like his his um, wife who's left him and he kills them by torturing them and whipping them and then gouging their eyes out and then like leaving them back we put them mm. back where he found them um well, it is, there's a bit of a thing in this where one woman gets killed and then instantly they just keep on saying they're looking for a serial killer. And I thought, surely, I don't know the dictionary definition of a serial killer, but surely it involves multiples. Surely. Um, and he yes. is, so he, yeah, so they're, they're after him. And of course, the first person he sees that looks like his wife is in a car park. And it's uh, the guy who fights back at him and he just easily overpowers and kills. They, The police, when they're looking at the crime scene, say, oh, my God, that's the world karate champion. Oh, the serial killer must be like a real you know, martial arts pro. And so one of these women who gets killed, Cynthia Rothrock's younger sister, uh, younger sister. And so she gets embroiled and the detective assigned to the case. And I'll tell you his name now. The detective assigned to the case that acts as your kind of psychic for the rest of the film, John Miller, as Detective Nick DeMarco, is up there. He's up with Al Cliver in terms of someone who acting is not a calling for this man. 
he, you know how Al Cliver can't convincingly stand still. Um, yeah. John Miller, t- the way he did, he looks like a person. He looks like a real person that exists in the world. But when he talks, every single line of delivery, he talks. And then it's almost as if he knows how badly he's delivered it. So he leaves a gap in case someone says cut. Um, and then he'll, and then if they don't, if they don't, he'll carry on. And I swear to God, I've never seen anything like it. My brother was really honed in on it when we were watching it. it so he'll say, uh, Cynthia, I've come about your sister. I'm afraid it's bad news. She won't be coming home tonight because she's been killed. There, there. And, and you're like, what? Wow. And of course, and because you realize in these sequences, like Cynthia Rothrock is actually like, seems quite amiable and approachable and kind of girlish and has like a sort of a, a lightness about her. When she's talking, she acts him off the screen because she's just talking like a real person would. Um, and yeah, so back to the, obviously everyone's a martial artist. But yeah, so the film isn't very good and it just keeps on looping the same thing. Someone gets killed and then they find him and, and he gets away from them. And it ends up in a, apparently this was sort of a bit of a meme on the internet in 2006 because the final fight is so ridiculous where they're in a hospital. Because the film is at a very clear end point and then it just tacks on another 15 minutes. So every it just boils down to these two people fighting in a, like a hospital car park it just completely greased up, tensing and sweating. And apparently it was an internet meme because it was so ridiculous. Of course, I'm completely desensitized to this sort of thing because I've watched so many of these films. So to me, it was just like a bog standard martial arts fight. It wasn't particularly memeable. So yes. the film, the film was, was average, bad. And, and, it, and, it, and it ends with this really weird three-way joke where they're at the, they're at the gravestone of... Cynthia Rothrock's younger sister who was killed sort of the murder started off this whole thing and she's now fallen in love obviously with the man who can't act and she but she's with her gang who used to sort of back pay for her fights if you know what I mean and like sort of the three or four of them went around and they're kind of these a goof these goofy guys and she puts down a kind of gang colors on the gravestone and says you know she's going she's going on the straight and narrow and then her gang kind of say, oh, you know, well done. What are we going to do now? And then she says, and this is pretty much verbatim. She says, well, I know what you guys are going to do. I've enrolled you all into college. And then they all like laugh and go, what? Oh, what are you, what are you talking about? And then they all laugh. And you think freeze frame, but no, because then the man who can't act turns to Cynthia Rothrock and says, well, I don't know what you're laughing at because I've enrolled you into college as well. Uh, and, like, what? and then they all laugh. Oh, it's my God. That that is a more memeable quote than the than the fight, by the way. Um, yeah. So it, it's just it's a bad film. Right. And, okay. I, and I was save I was saving this for the last. And the reason it's disappointing is because it's directed by Godfrey Ho right, in 1994 under the pseudonym, and we would never have guessed this, of Godfrey Hall. Of, <laughs> you never, I would say, behind like layers upon layers. That yeah. Um, yeah. So, but Hiding in plain sight. And he also directed Cynthia Rothrock, and I think it was called Honor and Glory and Rage of Honor, and I've seen those. And they're both really flat as well. And it... Yeah, I think I've watched Honor and I think I watched Honor and Glory. Watched, with you. Yeah, it's a really yeah. boring drama again. About yeah, it your, seems like rehearsals. That's what yes, I watch. Yeah. yeah, the fight scenes. 
Well, I wish this film had rehearsals. <laughs> it could have done with yeah. some, ironically, yeah. they could have done with a few more. Yeah. It, um, but it, it, it's I, I'm going to talk about a Godfrey Hall film, which is the man at the peak of his powers in 1985 soon. But my point is that, you know, like I'm at the point now where I, I feel like I'm at a point where I'm like, I've got Don the Dragon Wilson on one hand where I'm trying to find a good film he's in. And in the other hand, I'm trying to find the moment that Godfrey Hall kind of became not fun. Um, okay. So that's my that's my juggling act on this <laughs> podcast. Um, I just realised as well, looking at this on Wikipedia, that uh, Robin Shu, who played Liu Kang in the original Mortal Kombat, mm. was um, was in in Undefeatable, but in the Bloody Mary Killer cut only, which I didn't watch. So, okay. uh, which is really disappointing. So right. yeah, that's uh, that leaves me with. So if you do your next movie, if that's cool, and then what mm-hmm. I'll do is I'll play our guest review. And then, uh, and then I'll go into the um, well, what is the, effectively the tent pole of this podcast, my next Godfrey Ho film. Okay, uh, I I would like to talk about Men, <laughs> not Men, but I mean the film Men, which is on Prime. Um, and this is the latest film from Alex Garland. The previous, I guess, his previous one before this was Annihilation. Is that the bloke from the beach? I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, okay. So, oh, Annihilation, yes, yes, yes. Yes. So, this is... So, uh, Jesse Buckley stars in this, and it starts with her husband's suicide, and so we see that happen, and then she... You've been on a real joy journey this week, <laughs> yeah, haven't you? She basically, in... Uh, sometime afterwards, she she's recovering sort of thing, and so she goes and hires this giant country house to retreat and recuperate um and it's surrounded by obviously a local village but things get very weird very quickly in the local village not least the fact that every man and boy in the village is played by rory kinnear so that's a bit of a red flag from i know i mean from old men to vicars to children (laughs) are all played by rory kinnear um (laughs) I'm so gonna have a look at Rory Kinnear now. I want to see his face. <laughs> yeah, you know him. Is you it know please him. Stop. I assume he's related to Greg, is he? No, this is because um, <laughs> this is very. This is a very English uh, setting. Um, I suppose Rory Kinnear is best known for Bond most recently. I, he's in Penny Dreadful as well. Um, I never really thought much of him to be honest, but he is fantastic in this because he plays so many different characters. Anyway, so there's also. Uh, so Jesse Buckley, there's also an, a nude man stalking her who's trying to break into the house. Um, and it seems like this nude man has particular significance, but the police aren't much good. Um, obviously, the police is played by Rory Kinnear as well. And the vicar is literally a pervert himself. So she's having a pretty rough time and she's thinking, I just want to get out of it, really, <laughs> to be honest. Um but various things keep her there anyway. So essentially, she's having a nightmare of her time. Um, and uh, because these various men or boys are just extremely unpleasant and seem to all be out to get her. It was a film which was unfairly criticised, I think, unfairly, for ticking off toxic masculinity cliches. But I think that misses the point, to be honest, because I think the whole point of this film is that Jesse Buckley's trauma uh, 
of obviously her husband's violent death it causes her to and you find out as well that the husband was abusive as well so there's that but it causes her to view the world and men in a very specific way the fact that Rory Kinnear plays every male role isn't due to budget restraints the point is is that uh, the woman's experience has locked her into a single generalized perspective of men like the the pluralized title is ironic because she's she's not seeing men she's seeing this single totemic man wherever she goes and every man she meets is sort of like a variation on her trauma really so they may be ostensibly different in terms of like their age or their occupation or whatever but they're all underlined with like menace and ill intent and they may claim to be on her side but they are all intending to manipulate or take advantage of her and actually i think alex garland's he's really kind of writing a critique of the notion of toxic masculinity because he's presenting us with an, an extreme horror where like maleness itself is inherently toxic it's like the horror is not in the vulnerable female body here but in the hijacked female mind that she's become so utterly paranoid and and so convinced that just men themselves are inherently toxic that it makes it quite sad there's this final sequence in this movie because a lot of it is quite subtle a lot of creeping around and weird people um obviously all the Rory can hear but um but in the end it turns proper gross it turns into body horror towards the end and I found there were like shades of society remember that movie with the audio (laughs) yes I very much remember all that stuff but actually more strongly I really really wish I wasn't eating the blancmange when I was watching It reminded me mostly of a film called Extro, which I think I've talked about on this podcast before, which is this um, maybe early or mid 80s British, very British horror, which had a grotesque birthing sequence in it. Um, But it's sort of like it's, it's a lot like that, but even more excessive in a way. And I suppose there are also hints of Darren Aronofsky's mother in this movie because just because it goes completely bonkers towards the end really but I'm not completely sure I grasped the point it was making in that final sequence (laughs) Um, but I could tell that it was extremely bleak and it was very intense and kind of unforgettable and I and I like that and it's the kind of movie which I'd probably watch again just for its sheer creepiness and weirdness uh and intensity because it really is something you just don't know what to expect next um and it certainly delivers on that i found it much more enjoyable than annihilation i've got to say does it um in this film does jesse buckley does she talk through the side of her mouth uh yes there's, <laughs> there is oh, some talking through the side of her mouth, just, just 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 checking that everything was on point um, there is a certain amount of gritted teeth. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So, but that's recommended. I I liked. I like men. Um, <laughs> well, well you quote here's, me on that. 
here's something else recommended. This is uh, a, a, one of our regular listeners, Max, and this is mm. his review of a film to which the title I have forgotten. Excellent. Hi, Brit. This is Max here reporting for Kino Kingdom. Um, I said that I would give you a little instant review of a film I've just seen. Uh, I've just been to the cinema to see Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Um, oh, the, I've just remembered the title of the film he's reviewing is Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Okay. It's not something that a lot of people have heard of. I hadn't heard of it until since, until last week. And it's a an Oscar-nominated live-action stop-motion animated film combo. Uh, and it tells the story of Marcel, who is a little shell, uh, who lives in a human house with his gran, uh, a bit like the Burrowers. So they sort of um, live in a human-sized house, but have little, you know, houses in there and contraptions and all the like. It's brilliant. That's a short version of it. It's a brilliant film. Really, really worth seeing. Kind of reminds me a bit of Forrest Gump in the sense that Marcel uh, has a childlike, well, actually his a child, but a childlike innocence and positivity about the world. Um, and when a human arrives at the house and makes a documentary about him, um, you learn a lot about Marcel's views on family, community, philosophy, celebrity, when um, the world gets to see um, a little bit of Marcel's world. Um, and the story is, yeah, is that Marcel becomes famous, but also is looking for his family um who um got taken away and moved to another house and so that's it really that's that's all there is to it so it's a story about a a little boy and his gran and uh how they live their lives and their view on the world and it's a beautiful beautiful film absolutely stunning thing based on some short films made by a guy called dean fleischer camp who is the director and writer along with someone called jenny slate who uh, plays the voice of Marcel the Shell. But yeah, it's, it's really well written. It's beautifully, beautifully observed. Um, it's 90 minutes long. It's, it's totally suitable for kids, although I don't think young children would get much from it because it's, it's more of a kind of meditation on, on perhaps a more adult view of the world, but just through the eyes of, a, of an innocent young person slash um, crustacean shell thing. Anyway, quite hard to describe, but uh, and probably quite hard to go and see because it's only on <laughs> once a day at 10 o'clock in the morning, bizarrely. But anyway, um, it'll be on streaming soon, I'm sure, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So that's my review. Enjoy. Thank you, Max. Doing a review is mm-hmm. better than any I'll ever do, but know, don't worry. It's much I'm, more I'm pro- not... comprehensive and professional than either of us, but <laughs> I should just Maybe yeah, can, I'll, I'll... edit it so he sounds really rubbish. I will. I'll edit it just to be some shit like we do. Don't worry. I, <laughs> leave it to me, partner. Uh, um, well, now, I was like 24 as well, Marcel, Marcel Lachelle. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that does sound like one. That sounds like a one I could I could chuck on in the background. And if it's pretty enough, my son will kind of watch well, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was thinking that when he said that, because I, I don't know. I think probably our sons are so young that they don't know how to be bored. <laughs> like, if you see what I mean? As long as Just, he... Your son is 46, Rupert, and oh, mine's yeah. 25. I, I don't, they've, they've never be learned fun. how to be bored. 
I'm bored. It's like you should he's be working. You're 36. You've got a wife. He's trying to be bored. He's just <laughs> sitting around on park benches on like overcast days without even a book in his hand. Yeah. Um, he's absolutely I, thrilled. <laughs> I This next film is, as far as I'm concerned, the centerpiece of this episode. Um, because, yes, I watched uh, Undefeatable, uh, directed by Godfrey Ho, which was not very good. But then. We watched another Godfrey Hall film called The Ultimate Ninja from 1986, I think it is, or four. And I know that we've Godfrey Hall is a bit of a centerpiece of of like the reviews I do because I always get excited about them. And he is a, a real cornerstone of cinema. So, but what I thought I'd do, just I know a hallmark of his films is the splicing of footage from different movies together and them being hard to follow. So what I thought I'd do is a to sort of preface my review and um, what I want to talk about, which is admittedly a, a few things. Would you mind if I just read out verbatim the synopsis on the back of the DVD that Transwell gave me? Sure. Are you ready? So this is just for everyone listening there. You'll be familiar. Regular listeners will be familiar with Godfrey Ho's oeuvre. Uh, and this is this is genuinely what it says to clear up to the synopsis, to draw in viewers, to think, oh, if they were in a video shop, think, oh, well, I'll watch this, actually. <clears throat> so this is Ultimate Ninja, a fight for ninja supremacy. A 20 year old feud between Ronald I'm laughing because I forgot that it's set in like an indeterminate time period. So these names are just they're just completely like uh, anyway, a 20 year old feud between Ronald, a benevolent village leader and Roger, an evil tyrant, leaves Ronald dead and Roger running the village with an evil bunch of ruffians. Ronald's three children have been split up and are now young adults. Jimmy, the eldest, has been in training for 20 years to extract, extract, not exact, revenge upon mm-hmm. his father's killer and retain control of the village. Meanwhile, Victor, an evil ninja leader, Victor has stolen the black ninja warrior from Charles, the new leader of the Red Ninjas. Charles sets out to recapture the black ninja warrior and preserve Victor from stealing the golden ninja warrior. Which is how they say it throughout the whole film, Golden Ninja Warrior. Jimmy heads for the village to get Roger as Charles <laughs> begins his quest to find and destroy Victor. Charles, Jimmy has doubts that will he take back the village? No question marks. Will he be reunited with his brother and sister? And will he deal with Roger? But Charles is confident that his good ninja powers will defeat the evil power. The final battle is between. Are you sure this isn't? Are you sure these characters aren't from Only Fools and Horses? <laughs> right? uh, it, it's one of the things I was going to say is because the way this film starts off is brilliant. And it, it literally it's, it, it comes in, and it's just a, a man looking at what looks to be a, a, a an action figure, like this the Black Ninja Warrior figure, is like it looks like an a cheap action man knockoff that has had the legs melted. And sort of melted onto a plastic rock with a, like a bit of cloth draped over it to hide the melting. So it looks like he's holding an action figure. And he's staring there and he's a ginger man with really pale features and his eyebrows drawn on. And he's sitting there in a costume that says ninja on a bandana on his head in a bright red ninja costume. Just looking at this action man figure. And then a load of black ninjas come out and kill him and take it. But not before the other red ninja charles throws a ninja star into one of their backs so that's that right so that happens 
we're like, right, okay. And then, and then it cuts to a man watching this. He's standing on like a rock and he's like watching it. And there's a really slow zoom under his face, this really bombastic music. And then it cuts to a load of men walking up a path to meet each other in the middle. And then they fight and someone runs off with like a few kids. And I thought, oh, right. Okay. So that's, this is the whole Roger Ronald thing mentioned on the back cover. And then it cuts back to the, the guy who was watching this ninja fight. And then he sort of smirks. And I thought, oh, that was a flashback. <laughs> I, I I thought he was that, that was just the next scene. So it's like right, okay. So he's right, okay. I'm with it so far. I, mean, I, I seem to remember this being the, the Godfrey Ho film I saw. Uh, this seemed to be there was a problem in that film as well. That that the temporal kind of like uh, like awareness temporal, of, yeah. of what was actually meant to be happening was completely out of whack. So you'd it'd be whole scenes which turn out to be flashbacks after they'd gone on for like 10, 15 minutes, and then he turned out, oh, is the flashback, was it? Okay, I just assumed that was happening now. There was no yeah. evidence, literally no evidence, that we'd just gone into a flashback. You're well, only course, telling me afterwards that it's a flashback. <sighs> That's no use to me. It's because in this film you've got that, so you've got that sort of like temporal disparity, but also it's because it's two films spliced two two films very clearly spliced together like like a load of like effectively like western weedy men dressed up as ninjas and then a redubbed a like asian film if you know what i mean like chinese film so so it's very clear when there's there's the difference between them but then you've also got flashbacks intercut so it's really it's really brilliant <laughs> really brilliant to follow um so what happens then it cuts to a village and there's just like people working in what seems to be this like sort of i don't know like a cafe in like medieval times or whatever like my chinese history isn't up to scratch so but when they keep on saying the village and ronald and roger in this village it's a cafe it's like an essay cafe it's like people eating sitting on like benches outside like with like an outside stove so you think this is what it was this like is this like you know like 15th century when is this but then you realize it can't be 15th century because even though there are a load of people walking around with like rags and like sort of like bits of cloth tied to their feet, dragging around like a you know, like a cart and walking around on donkeys. Conversely, in the same scene, there'll be men with powder blue sports jackets zipped up with jeans and belts on. <laughs> so you're like, is, is it 1985? Is it? Who knows? Um so, so temporal from, meaning is broken down yet further. <laughs> yeah. So it cuts to this bloke in this cafe. And by now I've like, I don't know who the brothers are. Cause of course it shows you these people as children. It doesn't, it doesn't then show you them as adults. So it just, <laughs> it just like, they just introduces people, doesn't say their names and assumes, you know, like, oh, that's his sister, by the way. So there's this bloke who basically is a bit of a goofball working at this cafe and he spills food over someone and someone said, and then this guy says, oh, I'm going to turn you into the, um, the ultimate ninja warrior. And then it cuts to this montage sequence and it, it, you see him. And first of all, he's got a tree with like a, it looks like a, a bit of like a tea towel wrapped around it and he's kicking it and he's kicking the tree and the music's really ramping up. But then as he's doing the end of the sequence, he goes to like do this powerful knee. But as the actor goes to knee it, he realizes if you jump up forwards and knee a tree, it's going to really hurt because it'll just jar your kneecap. So instead, last minute, he kind of just like rests his knee on the tree. Um, so that, And then it cuts to him holding a stick in like a glade of a forest. And there's loads of mirrors on string, factory made square cut machine cut mirrors by the way this is obviously like feudal china or whatever um on strings and he just like 
it just hits them all with a stick. No blindfold, just hits them with a stick, which any of us can do. And then it cuts what? to basic hitting yeah. a miracle. So yeah, so it just smashing them with a tree and just hitting them. <laughs> He's hitting them with the end of a stick. Yeah, yes. yeah well, so I can do that. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> and then. And then the final test is him, um, and he's like basically just doing the hurdles. And there's three hurdles. He jumps one, he jumps the other, and then there's the last one is about 25 feet high. So you see him run up to it and squat, and then of course you see a shot from the ground of him jumping over a hurdle. It could be a two feet up, and then landing. And then it cuts to him with this guy he's met at the cafe who he spilt food over, and the guy says to him, "Well, now you're the ultimate ninja warrior. I've, I've trained you all I can. You're the ultimate ninja warrior." And and then he says, before you go on your travels, like sort of, you know, helping out others who need help, I'm going to give you this weapon that's been handed down my family for generation to generation. And he hands in a thin metal pipe, like just a, <laughs> like a modern metal pipe, like you would keep your towels on in your bathroom if you like just pulled it out. Right. And I thought, well, obviously, that's going to be a knife or sword. No, it's just literally like a modern factory made metal pipe he's got. So then the music gets all sort of, uh, you know, sort of grand. And it's him on this donkey that's clearly too small for him, just riding through different vistas, you know, across plains. And it'll be like him as the sun sets behind him going across a mountain path. And then he stops on this sort of overlook and he's looking over this this mountainous range, sort of as if he's come to the end of his journey. Hard cuts. Next time you see him, he's back working in the cafe. He's back in the cafe. He hasn't gone anywhere. Nothing's happened. Um, so that was brilliant. Um, people in the film, by this point in the film, I'm thinking, right, hang on now. So who's Ronald's dead? Who's Roger? So we, we find out who Roger is because the bloke who had a throwing star thrown into his back earlier on in the film stands and is talking to Roger, <laughs> well, ostensibly talking to Roger, and he's saying, I've been attacked, I've been attacked by the Red Ninjas, I need I need someone to rest, and then it cuts to a man and a woman, Roger and his wife, I assume, near a swimming pool, like poolside, on deck chairs, facing each other, and then, right. and then like, dubbed in over that, over them looking at each other, not at this man, who's clearly not only, in, like, not in the scene with them, but in a separate film, possibly filmed in a different decade, how long will you need to stay? A month. I thought, a month? Someone throwing a throwing star at your back? Come on, mate. You know, half day at work for full time, you know. Um, and then, and that's it. That's the explanation that ties the films together. So so then, after this, you have people come out and saying, oh, hello, um, I've come to the village to see Ronald. And then, and they keep on saying the names, which somehow makes it more confusing. And then, like, a, a woman in the village will say, but Ronald's dead. Well, who runs the village now? Roger. Well, what happened to Ronald? Well, Roger killed Ronald. So Ronald's dead and Roger... And you're like, stop saying the names because it just <laughs> makes this all just... Right. And then then you kind of... This whole like sort of town, Roger, Ronald, the, 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 the three siblings went missing and then people wearing jeans and kickers and other people wearing bloody armour. And then it cuts back to the whole golden ninja warrior side of things which is like right this is the bit like keep my so you got the reddies versus the blackies the, the goods versus the bads i can cope with this the red ninja clan by the way consists of one man called charles and the the black ninja clan consists of seven men and okay. so they keep on saying oh that is technically ninja. a clan it's more like one man sitting in a wood <laughs> and and then they, they keep on saying Oh, the Red Ninja Clan have defeated us. They've killed another two of our men. And they just sat in a quarry. And then I realised, hang on, 
there's only like three men, including the speaker in the Black Ninja clan now. But then as he says, no, go off and kill Charles. I realised that when they ran off into the distance, there was actually three of them. One of them was just out of shot for the entire scene because the aspect ratio was zoomed in. So, okay, there's actually four of them. So one of them runs off and he's got a letter that he's got to take to the next village, the next clan, which is probably three men called Nigel sitting around a puddle uh, to go and get their help to kind of help kill Charles, who represents is the, the total of the Red Ninja clan. But of course, Charles jumps in and takes this letter for help out of his hand throws it off to the left but then holds his sword straight up in the air and confetti rains down as if he's thrown it up and chopped it up if you know what i mean mm-hmm, on its way mm-hmm. down and he says wow. no help for you so then so then the, this is all kicking off and then it cuts back <laughs> it cuts back to roger who was also having trouble with Ginny, the grown-up son of ronald uh in the in this other half in the other half of the film and they Ginny. say to him jimmy and they say to him Oh, Jimmy's killing all of our men. We don't know what to do. He's 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 beaten everyone we sent after him. And there's a slow zoom on a Roger's face, and he simply says to the camera, "Get Steve." <laughs> <laughs> so then Steve seemingly just like he just turns up again. These people they all look the same. They've all looked like Charles Bronson. <laughs> They've all got an unruly mop of hair and a bad moustache. They all look like Asian Charles Bronsons. So, and then some of them, of course, are older and some are younger, but then some are playing older version and younger versions of themselves where they've just got like a bit of talc on their hair. So they're completely lost by this point. Um, so, yeah, this the, the, no, then the fight scenes kick off where the, the, the footage is constantly reversed. So it'll be people like jumping off a roof, but really they're just kind of like hopping on it, but it's reversed. Um, at this point, I was beginning to wonder, what is the Golden Ninja Warrior? What does it do? Why is it such a threat? Why does the guy having the Black Ninja Warrior mean anything when it looks like a melted action man? Um, and what was I going to say? Yeah, so it, it's sort of building up to the crescendo here. And mm-hmm. there's a bloke who turns up at the cafe that Jimmy or someone works in. And he keeps on like rubbing his temple, tapping his temple, and he stands up and gets into a fight and beats down five or six people. But he looks like a cross between. He looks like a cross between modern day Mark Dacascus and 90s Billy Zane if they never went to a gymnasium. So he's standing there and he's just a quite scrawny wearing a really tight, really tight turtleneck thin t-shirt with the sleeves cut off with jeans pulled up really high and he's just got tits <laughs> like he's just got like skinny man tits and he's he's fighting all these people off by like knocking them down in one punch and all, all the women are fawning over him and he and every time they say well, like who are you what is it he just keeps on touching his temple like like he's trying to say i'm thick and you're just like oh, okay and then he takes someone under his wing and then they disappear never to be seen again till the end of the film and then they realise that the film goes through this sequence every 10 minutes. Someone will be walking down the street and get jumped by like a load of gang members. He'll kick the shit out of the gang members. And as they stand up and sort of stumble off, the leader of the gang will turn around and say, oh, you're lucky. Next time we'll we'll kick the shit out of you. And you're like, well, you won't, will you? Because one man has just overpowered six of you. So this this goes on and on and on. And eventually at the end then, the two films reach their climax by a fight... <sighs> 
I don't even know the characters' names by this point. A fight in the kind of medieval side of the film where Jimmy kills, attacks and kills Roger, who killed his father, Ronald, 20 years before. And they basically just constantly teleport. Like one's got an axe. He's chopping wood with an axe and the heft, the haft of the axe is made of clearly made of steel. Can you imagine using an axe made of steel? Every oh. time you'd hit, it would vibrate. It would be like, yeah, it'd be like say, a yeah. golf club. It would, you know, his hand, he would have just have like vibration white finger wherever it's called. Yeah, and and then, then you reach it above your head to like take a swing, and it, 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 <laughs> just a rumble of thunder is like <laughs> oh, instantly, <laughs> instantly just lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, and impractical. <laughs> Um, items, uh, so I'd say. There's a brilliant part of this fight where they start. One of them's got an axe, the other one's got like his the thin metal pipe that he's taken off of his bathroom with like a towel rail. And they're in this fight, and then they keep teleporting, but usually they're like fighting on like a plane. Then they'll teleport into a forest, then they'll teleport near a waterfall, and then they'll teleport in some woods. And at one point, one of them teleports and he looks around like, oh, where, the, where the fuck am I now? <laughs> is this <laughs> where, is this, and is this a situation where they kind of. In, Godfrey introduces new powers and rules arbitrarily, oh, well, just like they're yeah, just thrown in. Because I remember in Magnificent, A Thousand Magnificent Fists, Fists or whatever it was called, in that suddenly the bad guy could like extend his arms at the end, for example. <laughs> He's just had stretchy like dial sim like arms. And it's like, well, that's cool. But that was not, I mean, that never happened up until that point. That just suddenly happened, didn't it? You just made that well, up. It's funny you should say that because the thing that Transville and I were talking about was because I was very drunk when we watched that. But yeah, I remember his arms extending. But then in a previous Godfrey Hall ninja film, the guys, I'm sure it was like his fists or like he had some yeah. some like discs that just he could control with his mind. But then that wasn't the problem because the other the other two people he was fighting against, if they inserted their fingers into each other's belly buttons, they kind of vibrated and like got their energy back. And then uh-huh. they defeated him, if you remember, by just constantly punching him in the bollocks. <laughs> like, it was like bo- bollock foo. Um, so, yeah, anyway, in the end of this film, I suppose the way that that side of it is, it's, yeah, this axe, it just has different forms and like, there's a chain that flies out of it and they start, they just start teleporting. Mm. And then ev- eventually he kills Roger. Uh, and as Roger dies, the bloke who kind of looks like, like Chow Young Fat, if he had serious health issues, comes out of the woods and then says... I'm actually from the Chinese government. The Chinese government, which I looked up after I watched this film, wasn't formed until 1949, so I don't know what he's talking about. I'm from the Chinese government, and we're here to we were here to get rid of Roger and make sure that Jimmy takes over the village. And you're like, oh, I don't. By this point, man, I don't care. I don't care. Um, and then it cuts back to the sort of I'll call it like the western side of the movie where it's the red ninjas versus the black ninja, and of course there's just one on each side. Naturally, the end the end uh, showdown takes place in a what seems to be a picnic area near a quarry and they, they, they they're like fighting and there's reverse footage and they're teleporting and holding their little dolls up towards each other and the way the black ninja gets taken down is by having a shuriken thrown at him and it hits him in somewhere like his leg and he just falls over and then boom the end hard cut straight back to the dvd menu i couldn't have been happier because the whole film was you it was what i want from a godfrey whole film it's solid gold everything everything that happens is perfect everything that's said is perfect every image is perfect the music is perfect and and it's what you want i and i realized i was thinking about this i was lying in bed the other day and i was thinking if someone said to me 
if throughout the the history of cinema, if you could go one place, like what were you know with any film, any person, what what would it be? What would the situation be? And for me, it would I genuinely, and this isn't me trying to be funny. I would say if I could go anywhere, I want to sit next to Godfrey Ho as he edits a film. <laughs> I want to see the, how this how this all comes together, how this is financed, how. Because you I don't think he sat there. I think I think he just puts the he puts the reels in the room, tosses a hand grenade in there, and just closes the door. <laughs> it, uh, it, it's amazing. It's like this is one of my favorite films of his. And the thing is, it, it's got to the point now where I've watched so many of these films with Transvaal because it's kind of a, a ritual we watch them together. Because you need someone there to bounce things off to say what happened then. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, well, obviously they were like shoot, shooting at each other in a construction site. And then it zoomed in on a man eating a biscuit in a boat. And like, oh, right. OK, that's what I thought. Because um, you need that. Otherwise, you think you're losing your mind. And that's Six the thing. You're, you're talk- yeah, you're saying like, oh, hang on. The, gold, the, the Golden Ninja Warrior. Wasn't that in the other film, Ninja Terminator? No, that was in that was in Ninja Squad. Um, yeah. where, where, where this random thing happened. And you need where, where they said... Do you remember when we were talking on that construction site and they're still on the construction site talking? It's the same conversation. <laughs> it's the next line in the conversation. Um, it, it's just, oh my God. it's that fantastic. Is, so this is so one of my good. favorite Godfrey Ho films. There is a certain amount of cross-pollination between these films, I fear. Yeah. And oh this is goodness. one of my favorites so far. Absolutely. Okay. And, and that, so that is, that is me. What's it called again? Ultimate Ninja or something? The Ultimate Ninja, but it does the feature the, the Golden Ninja Warrior. Yes, that's good. That's good to know. Right. Okay. Um, let me um, talk about a film called We Have a Ghost, which is on Netflix. Oh, I'm intrigued about this because I almost watched this. Ooh, okay. Has it so, got Anthony Mackie in it? It has got Anthony Mackie in it. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's a horror comedy from Christopher Landon, who is most famous for the Happy Death Day films. Um this one's about a family moving into a haunted house, uh, forced to due to money issues. They don't know it's haunted, but it's pretty clear pretty quickly. Uh, so the main dynamic is between the very alpha dad, who's uh, played by Anthony Mackie, and his gentle, introverted son. And there's a lot of tension there. But the son finds a ghost in the attic. The ghost is played by David Harbour. And he films it and gradually the ghost is introduced to the family and the dad sees an opportunity here um, to like film the ghost and become an Internet sensation. Whereas the son just wants to help the ghost find peace, whatever. It's quite a cool concept in itself, like a family comedy where a ghost can help heal the rifts. But the tone is pretty shaky, I'd say. It has this old-fashioned earnestness about it. I mean, the ghost is even called Ernest, for goodness sake. And mm. this classic studio look that's very appealing. But all that stuff is constantly interrupted with, like, lame contemporary pop culture references that make it instantly dated. Like, we just refer to, like, I don't know, Kardashians or something. It's like, stop, please, no. And um, there's this... The kid... the the son is is fine he's he's nice enough but he's got this japanese neighbor slash love interest who's intensely irritating intensely because this kid the boy is very introverted it's perpetuating that the hollywood lie that basically introverted people are just waiting for an extrovert 
to unleash their inner cretin. And <laughs> put it this way, this kind of sums it up. There's a scene, which is like an introductory scene, uh, and this is meant to represent why it is that he's falling in love with her. There's a scene where he's quietly researching in the library, right? In the school library. She comes along and loudly proclaims that being quiet in libraries is dumb, doesn't make any sense. Okay, pissing everyone off already. And then she comes around and looks over his shoulder at what he's doing on his laptop, barges her way into his seat, grabs his laptop and just starts hacking by typing shit in. And then then she leaves and she's got a trombone with her. So she blows her trombone in someone's ear on the way out. And this is all meant to be totally endearing, of course. And you're just thinking this is just an annoying person. Get out. Go away. I don't want to be around you. You're annoying. You're embarrassing me. I'm getting getting vibes here of um, Scott Pilgrim and the Knives Chow thing. Yeah, where it's like, you know, when to be with that person. Yeah, you have to be with, like, the woman who's a complete moody twat. And 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 that's that's her character, who clearly has, like, very poor taste in men and a really bad track record and is a knob. And, and yeah, if that happened to me, I just think, well, she was a dickhead. Yes, and that's what I was thinking the whole way through. And it's a real pity. Um, is, it for, is, is this a, is yeah. this the whole thing as well? Where sorry to interrupt. Where it's like a female character written by like an uh, like an ideation of a fifty year old man or something. Yes. Yeah, so well, I mean, it's it's sort of a a variation. It's a bit more modern variation on what would have been the what's it called the manic pixie dream girl type mm. trope. Uh, Except the difference here is she's much sort of frumpier um, and a bit less sort of ultra feminized than, than all that. She's not a bit less pixieish, basically. So she's it's Kathy got... Bates, is it? <laughs> yeah, basically. It's actually Kathy Burke. Um, no, but um, <laughs> it's actually uh... Michael Burke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, intensely irritating. So Anthony Mackie's character, meanwhile, he's trying to exploit Ernest the ghost uh which does mean we have to endure montages of actors <laughs> pretending to react to internet footage of Ernest so you get lots of like tiktok like faux tiktok stuff or youtube stuff and that doesn't sound very good Ruben no and well that's not the end of it because you don't just get those videos you get people performing like reaction videos to those videos so you've got actors pretending to be people reacting performatively to fictional footage it's like a whole multi-layered thing of just hell so this is so this is a com this is a comedy supposedly yeah and this is who who is it aimed at do you think when you're watching it well i think slightly older kids i suppose maybe Younger so teens, was, possibly. Was this one of those films that, like, were you watching and thought, I'm not... Like, when I watched Enola Holmes and I thought, I'm not the target demographic. No, I'm not sure it's quite... I mean, Enola Holmes is a bit different, I would say. I think with this, it's very much a family comedy. It's meant to appeal to the whole family, as far as I can see. Oh, so there's, there, no, like, is, there's no horror elements at all, really, then? Not really. It's not, not okay. a scary film, no. Um, there are so many subplots in this movie as well. By the way, like there's this whole subplot involving the FBI, which does not need to be in there at all. This is two hours. This movie they could cut 
the entire subplot involving the FBI. It does not need to be in there at all. They could have cut that out, shaved an hour off, uh, half an hour off, I'd say. And there's also this really, really pointless and unfunny cameo from Jennifer Coolidge as well. Again, it doesn't need to be there. That's 10 minutes you could have saved. Because I think that really the best crowd-pleasing family comedies are probably defined by their efficiency. When you think of like something like Ghostbusters or something like that, like virtually every scene is memorable and the few that stand out, uh, the few that aren't kind of stand out on the next viewing, if you like, like Dan Aykroyd getting sucked off by a ghost. But I think the more you fill a film with pointless, unfunny padding, the less memorable it becomes, to be honest. It's just a lot of content and none of it's landing. Because the foundation uh, is just here. Gonna, just going to repeat that for the for the long term fans. The more you fill a film with pointless, unfunny <laughs> padding, the worse it is. Yeah. That, basically. <sighs> what a statement! What a statement! And uh, I'm going to put that in my seminar when I go back to my tenured professorship. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, I was just saying the foundation is there for. A quite a simple, sweet, earnest, concise ghost story, family drama thing. But instead, it's a turgid, unfocused, unfunny, interminable drag of a movie. And it's good cast. So, you know, we like Anthony Mackie, we like David Harbour, but and a good, good concept, but it's just bad writing, bad editing and bad execution. So that's a real disappointment. Yeah, obviously, the... I don't watch the Savalas, but with yeah. with David Harbour, Stranger Things was his big yes. thing, wasn't it? Yes. And they needed they needed Hellboy reboot, which didn't go well. Now Ew. he's done this, which hasn't gone well. What mm. is he? Is I mean, I liked him in the um, Black Widow. I think I was the only person who liked him and found him funny in the Black Widow film. Right. You know, it, it, has he had a string of poor successes, or was this just a a wobble in the road? Um, I don't know. I mean, I. I only ever knew him before Stranger Things is like what they call a character actor. Is that what they call them in America? Like yeah. he would do, like he was, he made, but he'd always make an impact. Like Revolutionary Road, he was, I was memorable in that, and 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 he's a good actor. I just think Stranger Things happened to be perfect role for him. And I, I mean, it's yeah, the problem with this film, with um, it, we have a ghost, is that. It's not really playing to his strengths really as well, because he does not speak in this movie. He is unable to speak, which. Um, I mean, well, it's a problem. Just, does he just shrug his shoulders then? Well, he just does a lot of facial stuff. And how does he how does he say boo then? <laughs> oh, this is the thing. It's not really completely clear because he can actually like scream. He can he can go ooh, but he just can't actually say words, which is odd. But I don't know why. It's a bit of a weird decision, really. I just I don't because I mean it. it you lose some of the charisma, f- and it, and it's pointless anyway. Why would why have him silent? What well, it's not like he's uh, like a superbly accomplished physical comedy actor in fact he's quite bulky and burly really isn't he he doesn't really have that, was that level that, of this control. reminds me of that film where was it eddie murphy where there was a film where in the nadir of his career where it's like oh you know you've heard eddie murphy talk for years what about if he couldn't 
And so, well, yeah. that would be shit, wouldn't it? Because you've taken away his greatest strength. Was it Eddie Murphy? Yeah. Well, there was, and there was also, um, was it After Earth, the one where they cast, where M. Night Shyamalan cast Will Smith as someone who can't express emotion. And it's like, well, of all the people, like the why, one. Why thing, do that when Al Cliver, Al Cliver is yeah. like down. He would have done it for Florida, free. Dude. He would have paid you. I stand on a set and just can't emote. He signed me up. I would obviously have to book at his acting classes for a bit, but my God. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that was disappointing. But um, I mean, I've got a couple more, but I I can save them for the next one. That's absolutely fine. Not a problem. Well, no, I've got nothing else, and we've only got the Arkansas. So if you want, if you want to pound through them, feel free. I'll do one more, shall I? Okay. Okay. Let's do, I'll quickly talk about a little movie called The Strays, which is on Netflix. And this is a British mystery drama. Um, I hesitate to call it a thriller. (laughs) I really do hesitate to call it a thriller. (laughs) It's about a light-skinned black woman living in a posh and very white Wiltshire suburbia with her white husband and mixed kids. And she's a valued member of the community and... Uh, everything seems to be quite wonderful and idyllic. But then her two uh, black children from a previous marriage turn up and they're not happy with her having buggered off um, to start a new life, ostensibly as a white woman. So uh, it's, yes, a black character in the midst of a predominantly white world. And yes, it feels an awful lot like a Jordan Peele knockoff because there are overtones of Get Out, obviously. But it has none of Jordan Peele's like, black humour or exciting unpredictability. And there's a little bit of Parasite, too, with the class commentary. But again, none of the subtleness or confidence or satirical brilliance of that film. Uh, the main lady, Ashley Medeque, is good in the lead role because it does require quite a wide range of emotions, like repressed and otherwise but she is burdened by a very very lousy script unfortunately it's like a series of boring telegraph revelations and really over-engineered dialogue that sounds like theater language and i went and checked it out and nathaniel martello white who's the debutant writer director here does indeed have a rada background so it may explain why the the it may explain why the language sounds so theatrical in the film. It just doesn't sound like what people would actually sound like in real life. It almost looks like the film is finding its feet in the final act. And it could have been a tense and scary finale. But it actually turns out to be contrived and boring and predictable and badly edited, unfortunately. And, the, and then you get to the final shot is probably the best moment in the film literally the final shot but everything that's led up to that is rubbish to average at best so it's not worth it at all so that was poor the strays and just just for the american listeners rada is the royal academy of dramatic arts it is so then you can't can't just go saying no 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 one acronyms on this show but you just have yeah. to say everything Ra ra rada you, you have to say everything and then spell it all out as well like foolproof is it foolproof or is it was it foolproof <laughs> i mean i know i'm welsh but you've got foolproof and then foolproof 
Like you, it was uh, when you said F U double S. Well, foolproof. Um, yeah, um, it could have been a double meaning though, with like foolproof, like alcohol. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't understand. I don't understand your Welsh ways. <laughs> That's what we do. That's what we do up in Um I yeah. So uh, what's I going to say? Yeah, you talking about that? The um, the final scene. The final scene was the best, where you reached up and just turned the tally off, the savalas off. Yes. Um, I was thinking about cinema etiquette. I'm not a cinema goer. Um, but would w- you stay around to the end of the credits, or do you just frank both the second the film? Yeah. No, I. Uh... No, I, I will go. I I actually go. I used to hang around a lot longer, but the tendency for films. <laughs> you you, you have, met a woman then, didn't you? So you, <laughs> yeah. you didn't need um, to. But the 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 way that uh, there's this tendency for films to have like post credit sequences, and I, it inherently bothers me that that is a thing now that you wait around for, and I. And so I, I'm actually much more inclined to leave it instantly the moment the film is over now, almost in defiance of their ridiculous little pointless 30 second oh, cameo know. moments afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Like you, like you, it'll be, you know, the new bloody Marvel film. And then they'll say, oh, yeah, but after 45 minutes of credits, you see, <laughs> you see, you, you see Michael Flatley step out of an alleyway and then he takes his shoe off and in his shoe is a Billy Idol CD. Right. <laughs> I don't yeah. really know what that means. No, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, and even when it does, the last time, in fact, yes, the last time this happened to me when I was when I was watching, um, not not Shazam, Black Adam, yeah. and at the end of it, Henry Cavill turned up, and I said, oh, I fancy Henry Cavill. Oh, it turns out he's not even going to be the new Superman, so you can't oh, even yeah. rely on. It's just you can't even pointless. Rely on, you can't even rely on wasting your time these days. Um, I've heard rumours yeah. that Henry Cavill is back on as Superman now, but I can't keep up with these things. Hmm. And as long just, as I'm not sure I care that much either, to be honest. As long um, as he's always directly in my line of sight, there's no problem. Yeah. I just, I move, just, he just should just do YouTube videos about him building PCs. That'd be fine with that. I wonder if how much he is on camera. He's probably too building busy. PCs, just wearing a vest on a hot day. Uh, and then me looking through the window, the window fill, fill, filled with condensation somehow on the outside, even though it's a hot day because I'm volcanic just with less. up the rest of the world. <laughs> um, God, that, that's love, isn't it? That's love. If, if I was sat here like typing and then I looked up and it was a bright, hot day and there's a woman like leaning on my window, looking at me with eyes wide with lust. And it was condensation on the outside of the window. I would think, poor, she fancies me, mate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, we come now to the, the spine of the podcast, the Arkansas. Um, mm. And by the way, if you want to send in a like a uh, an Arkansas answer or a guest review or anything, or just even who'll abuse at us, um, or if you're a marine biologist that wants to talk about an issue you've picked up with one of the shark films we've covered, which has happened in the past, um, just just send it to the men who talk at outlook.com. And just for Rupert, it, it's like T H E M E N W H O T A L K, the at symbol, and then outlook.com. Because I know you like to spell things now, apparently. Yeah, I need to um, sure. So. 
now we're on to the Arkans Dart. We've had a few responses this time. I've got a few audio ones, which are always wonderful and yet slightly awkward just due to my poor planning. I'll play this one twice because I think it's quite quiet. So this is from uh, the Tier Career Birthing Utah Smith. And I don't know, it's either Tamar or Tamar. Either way, she sounds like a burner. Um, Sam Elliott and Nick Cage in Ghost Rider. Nick Cage and Meg Ryan in City of Angels. Meg Ryan, Dennis Quaid in a space. Well, a lot of good stuff there. I wish someone wasn't jumping up and down on a seat while it was happening, but I'll, I'll do that again just in case it... Uh... Um, Sam Elliott and Nick Cage in Ghost Rider. Nick Cage and Meg Ryan in City of Angels. Meg Ryan, Dennis Quaid in a space. I just realised that like the creak, the satisfying creak in the chair comes as she says, Meg Ryan, Dennis Quaid in a space. So like as if she's like, <laughs> like leaning back. back. I'm yeah, done. like just yeah. just yeah, I'm done. I just drink that in. Yeah, so I probably should have pointed out that the Arkansas was from Dennis Quaid to Sam Elliott. Um, the next one is from our um, occasional co-host and constant lover, Laszlo Buckets who says, yo, Arkansas, I was sure these two were in a Western together, but it turns out I was confusing my Wyatt Earps. <laughs> so instead, I have Dennis Quaid, who was in Inner Space with Meg Ryan, who was in Top Gun with Val Kilmer, who was in Tombstone with Sam Elliott. Uh, the next one is another video message we had in from someone called Mike, who, and again... I'm no geographer, uh, and my, you know, I, I, my geography is terrible. But I think, I think this person may be from the south of England. Sam Elliott with Bradley Cooper in The Star Is Born. Bradley Cooper with Sienna Miller in The Sniper. Sienna Miller with Dennis Quaid, GI Joe, classic. I'll play that again, not because obviously it's like a little bit bustly, but also because he says GI Joe. Classic. I've never seen a G.I. Joe film. Is that is Mark Wahlberg in that? I don't know. I, I no, I've never, never seen one. Mark... No, no. What? <laughs> why would we? I suppose. Really. I mean, are they good? We're on the same I, foot. I, why, why wouldn't we, Rupert? Well, I don't know. I'd kind of put them in the same, like, just general pot as Transformers movies or something like that. It's sort of a bit of like a toy tie-in type thing. Anyway, I, I'm getting vibes that you'd think they're not very good. I think that's <laughs> what I'm taking away from your. From what you're saying. Yeah. See, I'll, 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 I'll play that again from Mike. Sam Elliott with Bradley Cooper in The Star Is Born. Bradley Cooper with Sienna Miller in The Sniper. Sienna Miller with Dennis Quaid, GI Joe, classic. GI Joe, classic. Three words, three words <laughs> that have never been in that order. Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of want to watch one now. It'd probably be a doable. Um, and then we had uh, a response from Dr. Congo Fighting, who says, here comes the two-stepper. Dennis Quaid was in the Big Easy with John Goodman, who was in the Big Lebowski with Sam the Mustache Elliot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Max, who kindly did a guest review today, which was more professional than anything we'll ever do, which I'll probably edit out now when I come to think about it. <laughs> okay. uh, just finished KK, top work as always. Dennis Quaid was in Any Given Sunday with Al Pacino, who's in House of Gucci with Lady Gaga, who's in A Star is Born with Sam Elliott. Um, i got to say that I like Max always takes like a classy route. Yeah. It, always, it almost was like a classic rom-com. Or, yeah, or there always films that you'd want to watch. Yeah. yeah, but they never will. But never um, will. So, yeah, I, was there a two-stepper in there? I feel like I read it. Oh, yeah, yeah, Congo fighting a two-step. Yeah. So, 
two steppers, the winner from Dr. Congo fighting this week. How are you feeling, Rupert? How are you feeling? I've got a two stepper, but it's not that. So oh. my two stepper is Sam Elliott is in the big Lebowski with Julianne Moore, who's in Far From Heaven with Dennis Quaid. Nice. Yeah. Far, far from, from Heaven. I'm thinking of Heaven's Gates, the Michael. Yeah. Well, Far From Heaven, it's it's a sorry victim of today's digital streaming streaming <laughs> culture, frankly, because it's a wonderful film and it's begging for a 4K restoration. But we don't have it. And it's not available anywhere streaming or to purchase digitally, which is a real pity. It's a a great movie. It's by Todd Haynes, who made Velvet Goldmine, Carol, I'm Not There. Oh, right, um, On the Savalas. Um, I'm Not There. Is that the the Joaquin Phoenix film? Yeah. What's the name of the director, sorry? Todd Haynes. Okay, okay. It's such a cool, like, concept for film. It's like a drama about a housewife who's husband is having a gay affair and so she ends up in her bereftness having her own affair with a black gardener and it's set in the 50s but it's and it's made in the oh, so when that kind of thing was fully accepted in america yeah where it was totally embraced on every level oh, so yeah okay. but it's made in the style of like a douglas uh, melodrama from that time um but because it's made in the 21st century they can obviously approach the topics more head-on rather than what they would have done at the time, which is just cast Rock Hudson in the main role and just hope audiences read between the lines. It's usually what happened. Well, I, I just, um, before we set up the new Arkansas, I just wanted to say that something, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but something I've read between the episodes, where um, I was on Twitter and it was it was someone who, what are they called? Showrunners. They're the, the, the head hodgers oh, yeah, of yeah. TV of the Savalas was talking about they had something on Netflix and then within like three months it was just taken off. And um, he made a point of saying one of the sort of real things about this digital age is that if you make a show and it goes on Netflix or Prime yeah. and it's taken off them due to the exclusivity, it's that's it. It's like it's never happened. You can't, yes. you can't buy it. There's no physical media. And, and, well, I, and, and I, just, I suppose, yeah, and, and by its very nature, they're not, not going to create physical media for you to keep are they really it's not financially viable is it yeah and i was just thinking god that's really weird actually because i know there's a whole thing crossing over into i know we always talk about doing a state of play uh, a video game episode but the whole thing about piracy especially in the in this sort of um 1632-bit era is ironically what kept a lot of those games alive and and, and available mm. for consumption now and i was just thinking that that's oddly terrifying if i mean if you if you were someone who'd like written written a movie or a tv show and then it got made and then it didn't cut the mustard so you've got all this you know millions of pounds thrown at it it gets shown on a streaming service for a few months or a year or two and then it's gone you can't download you've got no way of having that yeah it's it's i find it really sad i'd never thought about it until i i saw that twitter comment i thought that was that's actually quite upsetting for uh the entertainment media the fact that it's going this way it's uh yeah i mean you're kind about. of like if there is something you want to watch like some new series coming from like america or something like that so you're kind of like a slave to just hoping you're basically hoping that i don't know it's it will when it comes across to the uk it will be picked up by like i don't know bbc iplayer or something like that or one of the streaming services you happen to have already that you can actually watch it otherwise it's like well 
I, I'm not, I've got no way of watching like Peacock or whatever I've got, or I'm not willing to spend uh, another subscription fee just to watch The Last of Us or whatever, you know, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So it's weird. It's like, it's almost like the, on one hand, the program, programs, films uh, and TV series have never been more accessible. On the other hand, uh, there's no universality to it. Because, because at least when it was at the cinema, anyone could go to the cinema. It's like you go or you don't. Whereas if it's on like a different streaming service, I'm, it's like, well, am I really going to pay for just for that streaming service just to watch that one film? It's like, yeah. It's and just thinking about the cost effectiveness of it. Because just thinking, like, and I, I'm not, I'm not a sentimental nostalgia rose-tinted look at the good old days but just thinking about say the days of video shops and and, and dvds with like love film and stuff you you know you're paying a few quid a month or a, or a couple of quid a film but i just realized now that if you think about it it depending on what you actually want to watch you've got if you pay for if you pay for netflix and prime now tv yep. and disney plus and and like and then in into prime like shutter and stuff you could be clocking back or sky up to like a hundred pound a month and then st- but then be in a weird situation where you're you're scrolling to find yes. something specific and you'll never find it. I mean, luckily I'm I'm the other end of that where I will watch any old shit. <laughs> yeah, and, well, that is, I, yeah. Yes. and it's true that like most of the stuff I cover on the podcast, the most stuff I find interesting and most endearing and kind of is the stuff that I get from like Transvaal and charity shops because you kind of forget about stupid things like loop DVD menus and bad trailers and and you and it's that they will always kind of be there until the DVDs fail. But yeah, it's just a weird, it's a weird thought that things can just actually disappear. Like in, entire productions that hundreds of people have spent millions of dollars on can just disappear Yeah, and go into it, a vault. I mean, maybe it's always been that way because I mean, I suppose they do say from like classic Hollywood, only a very small percentage of them have survived, but that's due to like, celluloid perishing and stuff in the digital age it should be much easier to hang on to all this stuff but in a way it's even more transient now because of just the wealth of of content content that's been created and the disposable nature of it in the eyes of the streamers it's like okay well you know that series didn't pick up enough viewers so let's just cancel it that's done and cancel it well, holding on to the exclusivity, so it will never be seen again. Yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. Well, what 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 rose this up in my mind was um one someone um I work with talking about rewatching all of Twenty Four, and I thought it made me think about how that and Lost kicked off the whole um, binge culture, and secondly, um how uh <laughs> someone at work, a, a very dear friend of ours, a mutual friend, mentioned. I think I mentioned it in the last episode. Um. A Sylvester Stallone, Dolly Parton. Oh yeah, yeah. Rhinestone from 1981, not available on any streaming services. Uh, available online Blu-ray for 25 quid, imported from America. He bought it. He bought it. Instead, if you want to borrow it for the podcast, and I thought, well, I'm not a stupid man. Of course, I'll watch that for the podcast. But I just thought, again, like Rhinestone is is that's going to be nowhere. And that what got me thinking about these things is, ironically for me, when people talk about new stuff they're watching on the Savalas, I cannot. But if they mention a 1981 bloody musical with slicing and with Dolly Parton, sign me up. 
because it just feels like stuff that could slip through the cracks and uh, should and be has, safe. Really, and has for fifty years. But I mean, and, and I would go. I would also mention that, like, there are certain movies which kind of deserve to slip through the cracks or deserve to be forgotten because they were never that good in the first place. There's no point in like. No, we've we've covered Grease two on the podcast. Right? It's too late for them. <laughs> but like, but it bring me back to Far From Heaven, which is just a beautiful film and so well made and so universal and enjoyable and gorgeous as well. It just needs to have a proper 4K transfer, but it's it hasn't got one. And it's just, you don't know, maybe it's licensing issues or whatever, but you, these are the kind of movies you really don't want to slip through the cracks. How, I noticed as well that, that, sorry? How did you watch Far From Heaven? Well, back in the day, well, I watched it at cinema back in the day. Oh, of course. Sorry, yeah, you weren't reviewing it. You were just referencing yeah. it. Sorry. But, no, you know, fun. but I mean, there are other things as well. Like, I think we mentioned it. We were talking about James Cameron the other week. But The Abyss, which, again, needs a 4K transfer. And that's, that's not on any streaming services anyway. What's that all about? This is like, this is the guy who's created three of the top five highest grossing movies of all time. And one of his best movies you can't even see. Nuts. Doesn't make sense. Anyway, we're still here. Yeah. I wonder how the, the directors and the, the, the creators of this feel about that whole thing. Because they, they realize now that, you know, it's... I know that um, we, we've we've got a friend who collects Uvi Ball films. We've got my, my brother who's getting a good Godfrey Ho collection together. And I think, ironically, you know, in, say, another 20, 30 years those people will be heralded as heroes and yes. and they were they when they, when they when the content is like re-uploaded um mostly from prism leisure hollywood dvd production companies <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be loved and lauded um the arkansas i i have i i've never done this before but i i've had a person in mind that i want to my half of the Arkansas to be since before the show started okay. uh, and it's just because I realised that we don't come across her in many films and that's Linda Hamilton right so Good. I'd like it to be from Linda Hamilton to Brendan Gleeson oh you bugger that was a good one I like that so you've gone the cross Atlantic cross generational cross time zones cross eyes if you drink enough. Um, yeah, okay, so the next week's Arkansas, um, and it's the men who talk at Outlook.com, if you want to email in, from Linda Hamilton to Brendan Gleeson, which just sounds like a Billy Connolly travel show between two towns, doesn't it, on different continents? Yeah, Linda, comma, Hamilton. <laughs> Brendan, go to, along. To, to, Brent, to the town of Brendan, the county you're, of Gleeson in Northern Ireland. You're, you're not a fan of Donald Gleeson, are you? Uh, who's that? The his son. Yeah, who's that? Um, yeah, his son was in the yeah. Oh yeah, them yes. Um, Ex I'm not, Yeah, I think he's fine in certain things. I just, I don't know. He's just. It, it, it's like. It reminds me of. You know what? It's like when you see Colin Hanks on the screen. You're like, it's like you're fine. You're doing a job, but uh, you're not your dad. Are you? Sorry, but you're just not. 
Colin Hanks, mm. look, yeah, I know you mean it's not your dad. He looks like he was designed whilst God was looking at the model through the bottom of a milk bottle. There's just <laughs> something weirdly bottom heavy about him, even though he's scrawny. I don't know what it is. Um, so, yeah, uh, that was episode 69, title to be decided upon. The new Arkin stars, Linda Hamilton to Brandon Gleason. Bonus points if you can get it through Donald Gleason. And just to uh, just to say a huge thanks as well to Max for the guest review uh, and also to to Utah Smith for giving us our new intro, because that's very cool that someone actually pay cash money real, you know, actually dig up their drachma to uh, get to your career to effectively say that in a message that she you know, is in love with us and that Rupert is then going to edit that message further until it's just a two hour loop of her going, Rupert, 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 for his own, his own usage. Yeah. Yeah. What's Rupert backwards? Um, Trepper? Trepper? Trepper, Trepper, Trepper. Oh, yeah. That's not as sexy for some reason. That's weird. It just sounds like it was she's pretty saying, sexy before yeah. that. Because yeah. <laughs> Rupert, Tia Career saying Rupert looped is quite sexy, but her saying your name backwards just sounds like an Australian saying Trapper with like a stuck DVD player. So, yeah. Yeah. But it really badly edited as well. So I'd be looping it, but there'd be no like pause between the words. So it would just Rupert, 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 Rupert. And it'd just be like, it, it. the more it goes on, the less it sounds like just a word anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I was. Yeah, we could we could talk for a billion years, and we should only talk for at least two weeks. Pardon. So this is this is the end of of Kino Kingdom sixty nine. And as far uh, as I'm concerned. Well, okay, good night, Dad. <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to wind the window up for you before you turn the engine on? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Have a beautiful evening. Thank you for listening, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye for now.